Let's open our Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 15. Last week we looked at this passage in John 14 where Jesus had fed 5,000 people. Actually, it was probably more like 10 or 15,000 with women and children. And he did that over on the the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, where he fed that five, that several thousand. And uh, you remember that immediately after that miracle, that Jesus sent his disciples across the Sea of Galilee, going eastward, or going to your left on the screen, uh, over to Capernaum, over to, um, in that area over there. And you remember, there was a storm that night, and Jesus wasn't in the boat with them originally. He sent them across, and they had been rowing and rowing in the wind uh, coming down from the north. And if you remember, this, the Sea of Galilee is a lake, really, that is surrounded by mountains. And the wind can come in through those uh, mountain valleys at a very powerful clip. And this can cause that, the Sea of Galilee to just turn over very quickly without warning. And, and that was the situation here. And so the disciples are rowing, trying to go across over to Capernaum, which was the, the fishing village where Jesus and Peter lived at the time. And uh, remember, they got blown off course, and they're out there in the third watch of the night in the wee hours of the morning, between 3 and 6 a.m., and the wind is blowing them off course. They're not making much headway. They're about in the center of the lake, about two or three miles into it. And Jesus comes walking on the water. And remember that Peter, they were all scared because they thought they had seen a ghost. And Peter, once he knew it was the Lord, he says, Lord, if it's you, let me come out to you. And so the Lord says, well, come on out, Peter. And so he did. And he stepped out. Would to God that the, all the men in the boat said, hey, can we come too? Just leave the boat. Let's just go across and... Uh, and you remember, they, uh, Peter did get out, and he began to sink when he got his eyes off of the Lord. And then finally they land at Gennesaret, which was south than where they had really wanted to go. Because of the wind, they actually landed at Gennesaret, and this is the place that we visit when we go to Israel. It's called Nof Gennesar, and it's a really wonderful place. If you go to Israel with us next year, um, you'll see this place. It's beautiful. You will love it. Um, and so there they are. And then immediately after this event and, and coming over to the eastern or the western side of the shore, Jesus gives them, and it's recorded for us in John chapter 6, uh, 22 through 71, this discourse on him being the bread of life. And no doubt, after he had just fed those 5,000 and they were very thankful for God feeding them, but many of them were just there to be fed. And there were some that really wanted to draw closer to Jesus, but many of them were just looking for a free lunch. And so Jesus gets over on the other side of the lake and he begins to tell them, you know, Moses, he began to talk about Moses and, and how God had fed the children of Israel through the desert with manna, the, the bread from God, really. And Jesus says, well, that bread from God was me. I am the bread of life. And it was all about Jesus. All the things in the Bible point toward Christ. And that was the whole point of it all. And so after that, uh, let's read verses uh, 1 through 20, and then we'll go back and take a look at it. Notice it says, Then the scribes and the Pharisees who were from Jerusalem, they came to Jesus saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And he answered and said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say... Whoever says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift to God, then he did not honor his father or mother. Thus, you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. Hypocrites, 
Well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth. They honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And when he had called the multitude to himself, he said to them, Hear and understand. Not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth, that defiles a man. Then his disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees, they were offended when they heard this saying? But he answered and said to them, Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind, and if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch. And then Peter answered and said to him, Explain this parable to us. And Jesus says, Are you also without understanding? Do you not yet understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. Very interesting, isn't it? That uh, You remember the Pharisees, they were all hung up in the externals. And here's the truth about people. We, we are able to fool one another by going through some kind of outward manifestation. We, 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 can, we, can, we can dress a certain way. We can look a certain way. We, we can present ourselves exactly how we want to be perceived. And yet it can all be fake. Hollywood is really good about that. Madison Avenue is very good about that. Fifth Avenue putting on all the stuff, and you really don't know the person. All you see is the package and the externals. But God is not so much concerned about externals. And I'm always learning this lesson. Are you learning this lesson? Where you see something and you size it up because of what you see. We're so conditioned. And you know what? It's it's really an unfortunate thing, but it's just something that we have as Christians... We have to be very aware of, because the world doesn't care. They, 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 they size things up, and that's the way it is. They immediately put you in a box. But we, the church of God, need to look at things not from the outward appearance. We need to look at things differently. We need to look at the inside and, and, and seek to find out who is this person, because outwardly they look like a thug. Outwardly, the way they're dressing, they're, they're saying to me that they're painting a picture for me. But who are they really? And you know this too, and you've been surprised by individuals. And I have, and I, I'm always learning this lesson. You judge a book by its cover. You look at something. You immediately put it in a box, because that's what we're taught to do. Not from the Lord, but from the world we look at it, we size it up, put it in a box. And then after you realize and you start talking to that person, you start interfacing with them, you realize, wow, they're really not like that at all. I had this preconceived idea of who they were. And the Pharisees were very good about that. They wanted to present themselves as being the spiritual elite, the leaders. Everybody should bow down to them and follow them and seek to dress like them and, 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 and receive the accolades and everything that goes with it. The externals, the externals, the externals. And yet, isn't it true that it's really what is within that's important? You know, when you plant seeds into a ground, ladies, and maybe you did this in the last couple days, the only two days we've had sunshine in the last week, or the last several days, you, you go out and you plant some seeds. You look at the seeds, you can't tell what the seeds are. Seeds mean nothing. If you can only see what's inside, you plant that seed in the ground, you water it, you tend it, you fertilize it, and you pull the weeds around it, and you, you tend it, and then at some point it grows up, and then, oh, wow, it's a, it's a nice, you know, a rose bush or a whatever it may be, a tulip, only to be eaten by the deer in Penfield. 
Because that's what deer do in Penfield. They eat everybody's tulips. But you don't know what it is until it comes up. And then you're like, wow, it's so beautiful. You could never tell by looking at the seed that that beautiful thing was going to come from it. And the same thing is true for us. But there is sin within. The sin within us. And we try to cover it up with clothing. We try to cover it up with works. We try to cover it up with external so nobody can see. So look with me at verse 1 again. So it says, Then the scribes and the Pharisees who were from Jerusalem, they came to Jesus. Now notice who was in control here because Jesus wasn't in Jerusalem. He was up in the Galilee. And so who was in charge here? Who was moving? Who was traveling to see Jesus? It's the Pharisees. It's the religious leaders. They're from Jerusalem. They come all the way up to Capernaum, and they they came to see Christ because they're hearing about his disciples not following the traditions that everybody else is following. And it really bugs them because they want control. Do you know this word control? (laughs) It's happening all around us right now, isn't it? The powers that be want to control every facet of your life. To to help you think rightly. (laughs) But these guys, they travel 90 miles, roughly 90 miles from Jerusalem all the way up to Jerusalem... And so they say, why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. Now you remember, your mother has always told you, young man, you better wash your hands before you eat dinner. Right? My mother used to tell me that all the time. And it's it's a good idea to do that. You know, if you've been playing with frogs and... And, and earthworms, and you got dirt under your fingernails, probably a good idea to eat that, or to, not to eat it, but to, uh, to wash your hands before you have your peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Your grandmother would say, cleanliness is next to godliness. Remember that phrase? Is that in the Bible? No, it's not. It is not in the Bible. In fact, it is generally said that this phrase, cleanliness, see, the Pharisees would be believing that. They'd be like, cleanliness is next to godliness. But it is generally said that this phrase was first used or coined by the English preacher and co-founder of Methodism, John Wesley. Back in the um, 1780s, he did a sermon called On Dress. So on dress, speaking of, the, the sermon was about dress, right? And, and, he, and he said this, and I, and I quote, Let it be observed that slovenliness is no part of religion, that neither this nor any text of Scripture condemns neatness or of apparel. And it doesn't. The, the Scripture doesn't condemn dressing nicely. You should do that. And certainly this is a duty, not a sin. And cleanliness is indeed next to godliness. Now, I don't believe uh, John Wesley meant it in the way that the Pharisees meant it. I think he was just trying to get it on point, that as children of God, we should dress right. But cleanliness is not going to make you godly. In fact, if you're godly, you're going to want to present yourself as as a child of God and have respect for yourself. And so it's good to be clean. We should engage in good hygiene. But whether it's next to godliness is an entirely different matter. In fact, some of the cleanest people in the world physically are the worst people, the most filthy and dirty people. <clears throat> so you can never look at somebody and judge them by their outward appearance. King David knew this reality when he said in Psalm 5, he says, Behold, you desire, in Psalm 51, excuse me, Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. So purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Now David wasn't literally thinking that, you know, purge me with hyssop. He's saying, spiritually, Lord, clean me. Clean me, wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. He would say in the 10th verse of that uh, psalm, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. David was aware, and he was a thousand years before these Pharisees were ever born. He understood the idea of being clean on the inside, regardless of what the outside does. 
In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, God speaking to Judah, he says, Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. And so David and the people of Judah knew. David and the people of Judah and even all of us today, we can be made clean from our sins, but not by washing or by good hygiene but by believing and trusting and submitting to the Lord. So speaking of externals, how about you? Are you caught up in some kind of uh, ritual or uh, trying to do things in the physical to earn your favor with God, hoping that somehow your good works will outweigh your bad works and that God will be obligated to bring you into the kingdom because of your good works, because of what you've done on the outside, even though the motive may have been completely wrong. How about it? Jesus, in John chapter 6, the multitudes come into him and they said, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus said, this is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he sent. Believe on Christ whom the Father has sent. That is the work of God. It's faith. It's not by works, right? Ephesians tells us that. Ephesians 2, verse 8, it says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. A gift is something that is given. You don't earn it, correct? Because if you could earn it, then it's no longer grace. It's debt. So it's all about grace. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. And the Pharisees were great at boasting. They loved to boast. And we do too. We like to toot our own horn. When we do something right, you know, there's nothing worse than, you know, several days or weeks, you know, nothing really as good is happening. And, and for one day you get it right and you do something really great and nobody knows about it. <clears throat> God knows, the angels of heaven know. But you want to put it on Instagram. You want to put it on Facebook. You want to put it on Twitter. Look what I've done. In Romans 3, it says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh shall be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. So we can't earn it. So question for you. What is more important, the traditions of the elders that these Pharisees were concerned about? The traditions of the church or is it the word of God? Which is more important? Because, folks, you and I both have to make a decision whether we're going to be going along with the traditions in the church or the traditions of, or, or the scripture. We have to make the decision. Because here's the truth. Some denominations have church traditions where they baptize infants, giving the child and their parents this false um, sense of security, believing that if they baptize their child, they're going to go to heaven when they die. And the child grows up thinking they're going to heaven because they were baptized in a specific denomination. And not to frustrate anybody here, but there is a denomination that venerates or worships Mary, the Roman Catholic Church. And not to bash Catholics at all, but their doctrine, the leaders, they shouldn't be teaching and encouraging people to bow down to Mary or to venerate Mary at all. Did Mary pay for your sins on the cross? It's nowhere to be found in the Bible. She is not co-redeemer with Jesus, and they teach that. It's wrong. And many people are serving the mother, you know, the, 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 you know serving Mary instead of serving Christ. Only Christ died for your sin. Mary is a blessed woman. She's a wonderful lady. I can't wait to meet her. I can tell you right now, she's shaking her head in glory, wondering why so many people are burning candles next to her image or her statue. What are you doing? If she could speak to them, what are you doing? The last thing I said to Jesus, the last thing that Mary said to Jesus on the earth, the last thing recorded in Scripture, Mary said something really significant. She said, whatever he says, do it. Hmm, that's interesting, isn't it? Whatever he says, do that. 
She didn't say, you know, I'm pretty awesome myself. I, I bore him and I carried him for nine months. I keep it coming, keep it coming. Yep, just keep it coming. Tithes and offerings too, you know, and just keep it coming. I'm merry and someday they're going to venerate me and give me the thing that I, you know, what I'm really worth will finally be known to the world. No, she said, I'm nobody. Worship him. Worship the Lord. So they said to Jesus, these legalists, why do your disciples transgress the traditions of the elders? They don't wash their hands when they eat. God had given Israel ten commandments, didn't he? They're recorded for us in Exodus chapter 20. And then finally in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus narrows down those ten commandments into two commandments. He said in Matthew 22, There we go. <laughs> he said in Matthew 22, teacher, or they said to him, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law, the, great, the greatest commandment? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So Jesus makes it even simpler because all of those commandments, those ten, can really be broken up into our love for God and our love for man. They really can. It's very simple. So he breaks it down from ten down to two. And yet the Jews extracted 613 laws from the commandments. And in later years, other laws and rules were added to the Jewish life, making it very tedious and difficult for them. They focused on the externals. But it had always been about the heart, hadn't it? Remember in Matthew chapter 5, what did Jesus upbraid the Pharisees for? And to exhort his disciples. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, he says, You heard that it was said to, of those of old, you shall not murder. That was one of the Ten Commandments. And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Again, Jesus comparing something that was uh, physical or something in the natural, something tangible like murder, and equating it to something spiritual, something within the heart. (laughs) And he goes on in the same chapter in verse 27, you've heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whosoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Same thing. He may not have actually physically touched the woman, but his mind and his heart have already committed adultery. Again, the internal. Furthermore, in verse 31, it's been said, whoever divorces wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Jesus was always speaking of the heart. A direct conflict with the religious leaders. And Jesus was always gentle to those who are truly seeking. He was always gentle to the person who really wanted to know the truth. But he was very stern to the religious leaders. And we know this in Matthew 23. Jesus, speaking to the multitudes and his disciples concerning the Pharisees, he says this, Woe to you, blind guides! Whoever swears by the temple, you say that it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, it is nothing. But whosoever swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and by all things on it. He who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, 
You pay tithe and mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Blind guides who strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. Can you imagine what these guys must have looked like? I have this picture of these guys who just look immaculate. They're all in their robes and they walk around and it looks like they're, they got lemons in their mouth because they're all puckered up. Straining at a gnat and swallowing a camel. That sounds appealing. Woe to you, you cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of extortion. I'm always making sure that I have the package going on, looking good for the cameras and everybody who's looking. Look at me. (laughs) Everybody's looked at me. But inside, filthy and decrepit and bankrupt. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the dish that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe to you, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you are outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And boy, the church is filled with hypocrisy. And I'm not just saying here, I'm not even saying here necessarily, but in the church in America, hypocrisy. We claim to know God, and yet we don't want to have anything to do with him. We just kind of fit him into our, our routine. We come on Sunday, put some money in the box, and that's our obligation. That's it. It's all the Lord gets. And then we can live like hell for the rest of the week. That's not Christianity. That's, that's, that's a warped religion. Because the Lord wants all of you. He wants to get in the innermost being. He wants to change you from the inside out, not from the outside in, right? Even Paul tells us that in the last days we'll see this same thing occur. And we have and will continue to see this kind of thing as we get closer to the return of Christ. And 1 Timothy says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, and we are living in those latter times, that some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Oh, is the church filled with doctrines of demons? It's been happening for a long time, and we're just waiting for the next wave of whatever the next fad is. And beware of movies and TV programs about the Bible and about Jesus. They're very rarely accurate. But you'll remember them, and it will reduce your knowledge and understanding of the Scripture and, and just confuse you. So they said, why do your disciples transgress transgress the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands. And so they're asking again the wrong question. As usual, right? They were holding their traditions over the authority of God's word. Now Jesus would ask them a question in the next verse. He answered and said to them, why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? And this is what is called getting in the way of God. Do you want to get in the way of God? I don't want to get in God's way. When Jesus died on the cross, the veil in the temple was torn. And it was a very thick veil, folks. The veil that was in the temple separating the holy place from the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was, was a very thick veil. And God tore that from top to bottom so that we could enter in. It was because of his blood that now we can boldly go before the throne of God And don't anybody get in the way of that. Don't get in the way of that. In Hebrews, it tells us, Therefore, brethren, Hebrews 10, verse 19, Brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near, notice, with a true heart in full assurance of faith, notice, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. It's because of what he has done that we have been made clean. We don't make ourselves clean so that we can be right with God. 
So traditions of men and works of the law, they seek to sew up that veil. If the Pharisees were aware of what was happening in the temple that day when Jesus rose from the grave, I'm sure they would have got out their sewing kits and tried to sew that thing back up. Oh, we can't have that. It can't be that easy. I got to work for this. I paid a lot of money to get where I'm at. And God is saying, you don't need to come with me for you don't need to come with money. You don't need you don't have to work at it. Just believe on me. It's that simple. A child can do that. Right? A child can believe. It has to be that simple because I'm not so smart. It had to be simple. But profound, right? Very profound. In the parallel account in Mark's gospel, in Mark chapter 7, it says the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands. In a special way, not just any way. You can't just wash your hands. You got to do it in a certain way. You got to do it in. You got to have your hands like this and let it drip down off the elbows. You know, you, you got to, doctors do this, don't they? They, they? they wash their hands, they scrub everything up, and they, you know, a certain way, and they're, you know, you know, doing all this stuff and, you know, and because you don't want them touching you after they've eaten a salami sandwich, right? So they're doing all that and cleaning up and then they rinse off and then they, you know, walk around like this, put the glove on. All right, now hand me the scalpel, right? And when they come from the marketplace, they don't eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups and pictures and copper vessels and couches, just scrubbing everything, making it look nice. Again, nothing wrong with neatness and cleanliness, but it's not going to get you closer to God. Back in our text, it says, For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. Yes, back in the Old Testament, you cursed your mother and your father. They would take you, young man, by the ear and take you outside the camp and they would stone you to death. How effective was that after two kids got it? Everyone, every child would fall in line very quickly. There was a deterrent, unlike our culture today. You can do anything you want. And you'll be released the same day. Catch and release. It's like fishing. I caught a bass. Sorry, I'm going to take, put them back. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift of God, that he need not honor his father or mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. So what these men were doing is they would have uh, monetary sources or whatever it is, and they would claim to be giving it to God and not helping their own family, helping their and honoring their mother and their father. And Jesus says, this is completely wrong. Because you're not really worshiping me with it either. You're only consuming it for your own lust. You're only saving up for that next fancy car that you want. It's not a gift to me. You're absorbing it because of your own lusts. Hypocrites, he says. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you. And this hypocrites is the word that you all know and you've heard this. They, it, it's the Greek word hypocrites. And it's a, um, a stage player. Someone who had the little, you know, the two little cards over their face. One was a smiley face. And the other one was a, a grimace. And you wouldn't know what's happening behind the scenes. But ah, you pull that out there and like that. And the big smile on the, on the little placard. And they walk around the Greek tragedies, they would do that and then, you know, and then they'd have a small face. That's what it is. That's what that means. Hypocrite. Hypocrite. That's what Jesus called them hypocrites. A hypocrite is someone who says or does one thing, but does something different. It's dishonesty. It's betrayal. James even calls it a double-minded man, somebody who is two-spirited. They say one thing and they do something else. Do you know people like that? Have you ever been that way? I've been like that, unfortunately. I've been a hypocrite. He said, hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, these people draw near to me with their mouth, and they honor me with their lips. So it's all lip service, but their heart is far from me, and God hates that. He wants us to be united with him in every way. 
so that the things that are happening, the things that we say and do are genuine. Don't you, isn't it a great feeling to just be who you are and not have to worry about what anybody thinks? For so long, I tried to be like somebody else. I tried to be like someone else. Tried to dress like somebody else because I liked something. But it, there comes a point, and it only happened after I gave my heart to Christ, that I re- really began to find out who I really am. And the Lord's like, can you just be comfortable in your own skin? Yeah. I can do that really well. He goes, well, do that. Because that's who I made you to be. I've made you individual from everybody else. You are not like anyone else on this planet. There is only one of you. So stop trying to be like everybody else. Stop trying to wear what everybody else wears. And do and, 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 and love the things that the world loves. He goes, you belong to me now. Can you just be yourself? I accept you as you are. You don't need to fake anything. Anybody a faker here today? Do you have people in your family, friends, coworkers that are fakers? They're just big, phony people, plastic. It's horrible. Just be yourself. God loves you just the way you are. You don't need to be anything different. Just be who he's made you to be. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines. And there's a very careful thing. You don't teach doctrine unless it's in the Bible. But when men get a hold of things, they like to teach their own doctrine. They like to teach their own things and package them up and say, well, this is what God said to me. No, he didn't. God didn't speak to you that way because it violates his script, the word of God. Why would he do that? He wouldn't do it, and he didn't. So receive your spanking and go up to your room without dinner. <laughs> right? <laughs> and then he says, so when he called the multitude to himself, Jesus said to them, hear and understand. And I love this phrase, hear and understand, because it is possible to hear and not understand. But to hear and understand is the goal, isn't it? A lot of people in churches all across the country today are doing what we're doing. They're hearing the word of God, but not many of them, or I shouldn't say not many of them, some of them are not comprehending, they're not listening. They're just here for whatever reason. But hearing and understanding is so important. And Jesus wants us to hear with understanding because that's when I change. That's when I comprehend who he is. And I also... I will love people better when I understand who they are. When I understand the truth about everything. Are you truth seekers? The Pharisees weren't truth seekers. I love truth. Even in the world, I just tell me the truth. I don't want to be, I don't want the narrate, I don't want the I don't want the narrative. I want the real truth. And yes, the truth I think is scarier than fiction. Give me the truth. I don't care. Do I look ugly? Tell me. Do I got a piece of broccoli sticking off on the side of my teeth? Tell me. Do I smell? Then tell me. Is my shirt wrinkled and I look sloven like a mess? Then tell me. Rob, you're like, please. Here, here's an iron. Do something with it. Now, just for the record, I'm a good ironer. And I don't mean to boast or anything like that, but I, I've ironed my clothes since I was a, a teenager. My mother taught me well. She did it a few times. She, says, she handed it to me, and she goes, we're going to have a little lesson in the basement. And so I learned how to iron. I iron everything. I love ironing things. Verse 11, and Jesus says, not that, not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth this defiles a man. And this is interesting, isn't it? Because it's like the age-old question, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Of course, the chicken came first. The chicken was created on day five of the creation week. You can look it up in Genesis chapter one. On day five, he created all the fowls of the air. Yes, wings, hot wings. Beasting, the sauce, the hot sauce. 
Which came first? So then, the, 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 which came first then? The defilement that is expressed by the tongue and the mouth, or the evil in the heart of man? Which came first? Go ahead. Yeah, the heart. What does it tell us in Genesis? In Genesis, it says, Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth. We know through the fall of man, certainly in Genesis chapter 3, but in Genesis 6, it says, Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of men saw the daughters of men, and that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves. And then the Lord said in verse 3, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. 120 years and you're going to get it. 120 years, I'm going to have Noah build an ark. And after that, you better have water wings. Because I'm getting everything on that boat and I'm destroying every living thing because evil had taken over such a great extent. Yes, before the flood, things got so bad. My spirit shall not always strive with them. And then God said in verse 5 of, of Genesis 6, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, day by day, only evil. Does it sound like New York? <laughs> Yes, sounds like every state. Sounds like the world. Without God, man, that's the only thing that man does. He only knows how to do. Just be a rotten, filthy sinner, which I was and am at times, but I'm, I've been redeemed. Only the blood of Christ has cleansed me. What does it say in Psalm 14? The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And actually, there is, is in italics, which, could, which means it wasn't in the original manuscript, so it could literally read like this. The fool has said in his heart, no, God. I don't want you. I don't want your authority. I will have not, not have this man rule over me. No, God. And a person who says no, God, is also going to say there is no God. So either way, it doesn't make a difference. They've done abominable works, the psalmist says. David said, there, there is none who does good. So haven't you come here this morning thinking, I want to feel good. I want a feel-good message. Tell me something about myself that's going to make me feel good inside. And then you come here and you hear me share Psalm 14. There's none that does good. <laughs> and Jeremiah gets, gets on us our case a little bit more. He says, God says to him in Jeremiah 17, verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things. You mean this thing? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, yes, and it's not that good. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, not just wicked, desperately wicked. Who can know it? And then the Lord answers his own question. I, the Lord, search the hearts, and I try the reins. To give everyone according to his ways. And our hearts, isn't it true? They're like a seething volcano. Have you ever noticed this? Even as a believer in Christ, that old nature. You've got two natures within you. Did you know that? You've got an old nature that's dead to God that you were born with. And then God gives you a new nature when you receive Christ and you're born again. And that new nature is over that old nature trying to take precedence. And desiring to take precedence, but at any time you can say, move over a little bit. I want to express myself. <laughs> You're going to be miserable if you do. But your heart, that old nature, that old heart of yours always wants to express itself. That's why the Bible says, crucify it. Don't give it any room to fester and to grow. There's only one thing to do with sin, and that's to crucify it. And that means these members in my body, the fornication, the adultery, the lust, everything else, the filthy words out of my mouth, the filthy thoughts, kill it, crucify it. And then Jesus said in Matthew 12, brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things, speaking to the Pharisees? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. This word abundance is the surplus, or what is left over and above. And you can usually tell who a person is, when you speak to them for any length of time, you find out exactly what they are all about, what really drives them, what motivations, what motivates them. And Jesus said, but I say unto you, Matthew 12, 
Verse 36, I say unto you that every idle word men may speak, for they will give account in the day of judgment. For by your words you'll be justified, by your words you'll be condemned. So I think words are important. What comes out of this mouth that's directed by this heart of mine? It is important, isn't it? The things I speak. And yet it's the thing that we don't really pay attention to that much. Do you remember the old nursery rhyme? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. Remember that? Is it true? No, it's not. In fact, sometimes I would rather have a stick upside the head than have a word that cut me so bad that I'll never forget. With a word, words can change things, don't they? With a word, I can bless someone and I can really encourage them. And with the same mouth, I can use words that are like a hammer or a knife that cuts them so deeply. And something I say to someone, they may remember for the rest of their lives. People tell me, I bump into them and say, hey, I heard, uh, I heard you on the radio last week and you said this. I don't even remember what I said. But it was something that blessed them. And I thought to myself, oh my goodness, Lord, I am in a deep strait. Because somebody's remembering something. And, and this happens to anybody who's speaking the truth, okay? But you, you say one word, and people remember that one thing. And they'll also remember the thing that you said that hurt them. So how important are words? With a word, a husband or a wife can say something that will take a great deal of time to heal. Words start wars. Words can heal. Words can sever the best of friends. Some of you here this morning have words that were spoken to you, maybe by a family member, a friend or a spouse, and they said something to you, and you've never forgotten it, and you, will, you haven't forgiven them up to, up to this point either. Aunt so-and-so said this to me. Uncle so-and-so said that. My wife said this to me. My husband said this to me, and I'll never forget it. And you may never forget it, but you can forgive it. And obviously, Jesus encourages us to forgive. And we ought to. And it's hard. Words. How important are words? Proverbs 16 says, an ungodly man digs up evil, and it is on his lips like a burning fire. A perverse man sows strife, and a whisperer separates the best of friends. Have you had a best friend who betrayed you with a word, said something about you to somebody else? Everybody here that's happened to at some point, and it hurts. Words can either be a wellspring or it can be a poison. And these guys, these Pharisees, it was all about the externals and their words. What was the reality of what was going on inside? The tongue of ours is an amplifier for our heart. Just like an electric piano is hooked up to a sound system, that is like a heart. It, you know, it, it can, it can, you can play it, but you can't hear it, but... When you plug it into the sound system, it comes out, and uh, your heart is like that. It's like an amplifier, and then your tongue, and I, I love what Pastor Richard said in the marriage conference, is your, your tongue has this wonderful thing. It has around it a cage. Teeth. And I, I thought, I really like that. And I'll pay you royalties for that one, because I really like that. It was a really good thing. Your tongue, there's no surprise that you got teeth around your tongue. I think God's saying, just bite your tongue more often. Before you open your mouth, bite your tongue. And that's good. Especially when you're angry. When you're about to say something that you know you'll regret, clamp down on your teeth and don't let your tongue move. Don't let it happen. I'm learning that. I'm learning to keep my mouth shut. And boy, sometimes it's so hard. Am, am I alone here? or Just say amen. Just make me feel comfortable inside. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> James says, Brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we'll receive a stricter judgment. We all stumble in many things, and 
You know, and he who, uh, if anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect or a mature man, able also to bridle the whole body. And he says, indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn the whole body. Look at also ships. They're so large, but they're driven by fierce winds, and they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a little forest How great a forest a little fire kindles, and the tongue is a fire. Have you experienced this? Maybe you have been the instigator, the one who is issuing forth the fire, or maybe you've received it from somebody else. Either way, it's a fire. And it sets on fire the course of nature and is set on fire by hell. For every kind of burst, beast and reptile creatures can be tamed and tamed by mankind, but no one can tame the tongue. It's an unruly evil full of poison. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? No, it doesn't. Shouldn't. What's going on in here? So verse 12, back in our text, it says, Then his disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? And Jesus answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Does that sound familiar when we were in a couple chapters ago in chapter 13? The parable of the wheat and the tares, or the darnel grass that grows up alongside the wheat that looks very similar? That's basically what Jesus is saying. These guys are like the darnel grass. They are like the tares. But notice what he says. Just leave them alone. Leave them alone. You follow me. They are blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch. And Jesus is here giving them over to their blindness. Because at the same time as he's teaching this, the nation and the religious leaders are rejecting him. Personally and nationally, they're rejecting him. We looked at that in chapter 12 and in 13. He's giving them over. And in Romans, it says something really interesting. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and against uh, all unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen and being understood by the things which are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. There it is again, right? The heart. The heart. Professing to be wise, they became fools. They changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. And then it says in verse 24 that God gave them up to uncleanness and the lusts of their flesh. To dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. For this reason he also gave them up to vile passions. For even women exchange the natural use that is against nature. And likewise even men burned in their lust for one another and receiving in themselves the recompense of their error. And God gave them over to a debased mind to do things which are not fitting, being filled with every horrible thing. And the list is long. But it's all about this heart that is controlling this mouth. Then Peter answered and said to him, explain this parable to us. (laughs) And, And this parable that he's referring to is what we saw in verse 11. And what was it again? Jesus says, not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a man. So Jesus answered and said, are you still without understanding? Do you not yet understand whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? But those things which proceed out of the mouth, they come from the heart, they defile the man. So what came first? Yes, the defiled heart. And then out of that defiled heart, the mouth speaks out of the abundance of Of my rotten heart, the mouth will speak. If my heart is good, then what's going to happen? Good things are going to come forth. And isn't that 
family of God. Isn't that what God wants? You and I have a wonderful privilege, and we have a wonderful, we have the Spirit of God in us. We don't have to be like the world. We can love people, even when they are unlovable. When people do horrible things against us, didn't Jesus say, love your enemies? Love those who despitefully use you? And that's otherworldly, that's, that's, that's supernatural. Because nobody wants to do that. But only Christians can really do that. And that's what God calls us to do. Jesus said, For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts and murders and adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. But to eat with unwashed hands, that doesn't defile a man. It's not a big deal if you're not washing your hands. I like to wash my hands before I eat. But it's not going to draw me any closer to God. In fact, I think sometimes, it's just my personal opinion, I think we become so sterile in America <laughs> that we, there's, there's germs and there's antibodies and there's things that our system doesn't have like other people perhaps over in like Africa. Kids used to play in the dirt and they'd eat their Cheetos at the same time. And God was okay with it. And those kids had great immune systems. And now everything is, oh, did you touch that? Squirt, squirt, squirt. You're going to die if you don't play. <laughs> Please, Johnny, just do it. You didn't take enough. Put it all over. Put it on your face and just... Fill up a tub full of sanitizer. <laughs> Splash. The Pharisees were concerned with the outward, and God never was. Most of us have been duped by this, and we looked at this. Samuel says, God says to Samuel as he goes to Jesse's house to look for the one that God had told him that he was going to anoint as the king of Israel. And Samuel sees Eliab, you know, out of all of Jesse's eight sons, he sees the tall, dark, and handsome one. That's got to be the one. And the Lord said to him, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature because I've refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And Peter, as we just saw in our text this morning, who had asked about the meaning of this parable in verse 11, he would later learn this lesson again. After Jesus' death and after his resurrection, it tells us something really interesting. It's in Acts chapter 10, verse 9, it says this, The next day, as they went on their journey and drew near the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. This is in Joppa, along the uh, Mediterranean coast in Israel. And he came very hungry and wanted to eat. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance and saw heaven opened and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners descending to him and let down to the earth. And it was in it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, birds of the air. And a voice came to him saying, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord. That's, you might want to underline that. I'd recommend not using that phrase. Rob, you need to get up and exercise. <laughs> not so, Lord. You need to eat your vegetables, young man. <laughs> not so, Lord. <laughs> you need to get on the treadmill, Kellogg. Not so, Lord. And notice, Peter said, not so, Lord. Isn't that a contradiction in terms? Not so, Lord. Wait, are, am I Lord? then it should be, of course, Lord. But as soon as he says, not so, then he proves that Jesus is no longer his Lord, right? Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything uncommon or common or unclean. 
And a voice spoke to him again the second time and says, what God has cleansed, you must not call common. And this was done three times and the object was taken up into heaven. Now later on in verse 19 of that same chapter, while Peter thought about the vision, the spirit said to him, behold, three men are seeking you. Oh, wait a minute. The sheet came down with all these different animals, unclean stuff animals and stuff, and three times it happened. Now you're saying that there's three men coming to me. Hmm, you got my attention, Lord. And didn't he go with Cornelius's men and go back to his home? And Peter with Cornelius and his Gentile family and group that was gathered there, it says in verse 28, then Peter said to them, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with, with, uh, with or go to one of another nation. But here it is. But God has shown me that I shall not call any man common or unclean. Again, the externals. So he learned the lesson, or he's learning the lesson. Yes, these Gentiles, the Pharisees wouldn't even look at them because they were unholy and unclean. And God's like, I want you to go and minister to them. Isn't that what the hippie movement was so wonderful? The Pharisees would have looked at the hippies that came to Chuck Smith in the 60s and said, get out of here. We don't want your filthy rags in this, on this carpet. We don't want you coming in barefoot. And the elders of his church were so upset about the carpet. So Chuck just says, well, remove the carpet. The untouchables that nobody wanted. The externals, you look at them and you're like, ooh, I don't think I want to be around them. And God's like, those are the people that I came for. Many who are first will be last and those who are last will be first. I was one of those undesirables that God came and visited me in the middle of my mess, in the middle of my sin, when I was completely worthless to anyone, and I didn't even like myself, to be honest with you. I was ashamed of myself for what a sinner I had become. Can anybody relate? But here is the conclusion of the matter. Proverbs. Here's what we need to do. Proverbs 4, 23. Keep or guard your heart with all diligence. That's what it means. Guard it. Are we guarding what we're seeing, what we're listening to, what we're watching? How is it affecting us? It will affect you. And, and what is the, what, what kind of, uh, how much are you spending in the word of God and in prayer and in study or whatever and then comparing that to the, all this other stuff? Because whatever you spend the most time with, that you're going to become like that thing, right? And I'm learning something. <laughs> and I love the Word of God. I spend hours in it every single day, and I am so thankful. It's changing me. He is changing me, and He's changing you. I never knew what blessedness could be like until I became the pastor of this church, when Pastor Jeff had left. I, I, had a, I had a good relationship with the Lord, and I thought things were going well. But you know what? There was something about what he's done. Because I, 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 I had the desire to. I needed everything, and he gave it. And he's still giving it. Keep your heart. Guard it with all diligence. Not some diligence, all diligence, for out of it, there's our word again, right? Out of the abundance of the heart, for out of it, out of this heart comes, it springs the, it forth the issues of life. So put away from you the deceitful mouth. Ah, there it is again. <laughs> the amplifier of my heart. This mouth of mine. Put away from you a deceitful mouth and put perverse lips far from you. So much about perversity of lips and the things that we say. Even our language. How is your language? 
As children of God, we should have a clean mouth. A clean mouth. And your eyelids look right before you. Ponder the path of your feet and let all your ways be established. Do not turn from the right or to the left. Remove your foot from evil. What sound, wonderful, gracious, peaceful words. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Your word, nothing else, nothing else, nothing else but your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. So thankful for that. So let's guard our hearts with all diligence and keep this thing behind the cage Amen? Let's stand. <laughs> Father, as what we just looked at this morning, Father, is, is so true for even the unsaved person. Lord, everybody in the whole entire world could and should hear that message. If they will believe it, and if they will put it into practice, this world would be transformed overnight. And Lord, you haven't come to transform the world in that regard, Lord. The world is not going to be a Christian utopia before you come back. Rather, it's going to be the opposite. But Lord, help us to be those ambassadors. May your light, may the light of Christ shine through our hearts to a darkened world, to friends and family, to our spouses. May we be the greatest encouragers on the planet. May we have the greatest smile and the greatest outlook. May you lift us, Father, from our, our dark clouds that have crowded around our hearts and our minds. Would you lift those things and help us, Lord? We are the children of God. We are the family of God. We are king's kids. And Lord, you treat us so wonderfully. And Lord, how we pray today that you would just set us free and help us to love and cleanse us and heal us from the inside that what comes out is marvelous and beautiful, just like you, Jesus. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you.